Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcast, as well as original stories. I'm your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and tonight's episode, I will again be featuring two lesser known but as I like to say but still equally entertaining radio series so without further ado this is Terra Radio the two radio series highlighted tonight are The Devil's Scrapbook and Faces in the Window now a quick and I mean a real quick rundown on both programs The Devil's Scrapbook came about in 1936 and was an anthology series which featured the (laughs) devil himself, if you will, as a host. And this was performed by actor Charles Penman. It's said to be based off of the popular radio program, The Hermit's Cave. I did discover that there were 37 episodes produced, but there's only one that's still available. And obviously, that's the one you'll hear tonight. Conquest of David Rugg was first broadcasted on November 28th, 1936. And it stars Penman as well as Noreen Gamble. After that, we have Faces in the Window. And this was a short-lived mystery horror series that came about in the early 50s. I want to say 1953. And this consisted of voiceover and recording artist Ken Nardine narrating gothic horror stories from authors such as Poe, Herman Melville, the whole gamut. Tonight's radio play is an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death. And it was first broadcasted on March 7th. 1953 so you all know the drill sit back turn down the lights and listen to conquest of david rugg followed by mask of the red death from the Devil's Scrapbook. Ghost stories, weird tales. 
realms of the supernatural. Yes, and murders, too. All the horrible tales of the centuries are here in my scrapbook. Listen, if you've got the nerve. Ah, but first turn off your lights. Turn them off. There now, listen. When I tell you what happened to me last night, Anne, you won't believe it. Oh, I was frantic, Sidney. I was ready to call the police. And now when you come home, you act so strange. It's because of what occurred last night. Sidney, what is it? You act as if you didn't know me. As if you didn't recognize anything that's going on about you. Anne, I... I've lived through a night of horror. Sidney, you're trembling and white. Yes. Now, sit down in this chair and tell me what happened. Well, sometimes I... I think I must have fallen asleep in my car. That someone must have crept up and put me under an anesthetic. I must have dreamed all of it. All of what? All of what happened to me last night. I can still hear the woman scream. Yes. I can still hear her cry for mercy. Sidney, what are you talking about? Perhaps... If I tell you, I can decide whether it was all a hideous nightmare or whether it has some semblance of truth. I was driving toward home, nearing the city. I think I know approximately how far out on the highway I was. About 15 miles. It was near 7 o'clock. and getting dark. The sky was clear when, when all of a sudden began to storm. But it didn't storm last night. If I'm going to tell you what happened, you mustn't interrupt me. I say, it began to storm. It was so sudden. The thunder became louder and louder. And then the rain began to pour down, like a cloudburst. The lightning flashed. The lights on my car were useless. The windshield wiper was useless. Suddenly I realized I was no longer driving on a paved highway. I was on a dirt road, where I didn't know wheels on the car began to churn the mud. With a sputter, the motor stopped. The storm kept up. The lightning flashed. The rain still came down in torrents. I opened the door of the car. I got out to look about, find out where I was and what had happened. In a second, my clothing was dripping wet. I was wading in mud. Then by a flash of lightning, I saw a strange sight. Down the road came a buggy with two horses. It was coming very fast. Horses and a buggy? So near the city? I couldn't believe it. But was I near the city? Where was I? And the horses and carriage came closer. As they drew nearer, I realized the driver was pulling in the reins. The buggy was coming to a stop. Whoa, whoa, I say. Uh, how do you do, sir? May I give you a lift out of the storm? I must have stood and stared at him. For by flash of lightning, I saw he wasn't dressed like people dressed today. He looked exactly like pictures of Grandfather Trent when he was a young man. And he wore a heavy beard. He repeated his invitation. May I give you a lift out of the storm? Uh, yes, my car is stalled. All right with me, sir. Well, thank you, I will. You see, I'm lost. I don't know where I am. What's that? I can't hear you above the storm. I say I seem to be lost. Now get in with me. Oh, 
We'll soon be home and then see you can get dry and warm by the fire. Now, get here. Come on. Get, get. Throw the lap robe over your knees. It'll help you to get dry. Thank you. You know, this is the first time I ever rode in a buggy. You don't see many of them anymore. Well, I just came from town. There isn't a better span of horses in town than mine. No, I imagine not. Some of the milk routes still have horses and wagons. The stables were filled with fine horses, but none as good as mine. What? Giddy up. Give it. We want to get in out of the storm. Could you tell me where I am, sir? Why, of course. You're on the highway leading into town. Are you a stranger in these parts? No, I live in the city, on Beach Road. Never heard of it. It's a new subdivision, built up in the last ten years. Well, we're near in my home. Will you come in and get dry? If it won't trouble you too much, I'm soaked through. You're welcome. See, there's my house, one of the best in these parts. This is the road leading into the house. Well, I'll let you out here and drive the team into the barn. Woody, woody. Now, you just stand here on the stoop. I'll let you in when I come in from the barn. Yes, sir. Great heaven, where was I? A man who talked of stables and horses, who called the city a town. A man who wore a long beard. I was in a daze. This man didn't belong. Well, where did he come from? I noticed how different he was from me, but yet the fact that I was different from him didn't seem to trouble this man in the least. I seemed to be under some strange spell, and I couldn't get away. But he was coming toward me now, coming from the barn. I could see him by the flashes of lightning. We'll go in the house now. Yes, I'll be glad to get out of the storm. It came up so suddenly. It's been storming for ten days. I don't understand. It came up suddenly. I'll unlock the door and we'll go inside. Will you walk inside, sir? Thank you. Now, follow me. Never will I forget that house. There was a penetrating coldness about it as if it had been closed for years. And a peculiar odor. What is it, I thought to myself. It's like an odor of a smoldering fire. Perhaps I should mention it to my queer host. But he walked ahead of me. In the darkness, the hallways were black as night. Even the lightning from outside didn't penetrate into them. Then I realized all the blinds in the house were drawn. We approached the door. He opened it. In this room... An old-fashioned chimney lamp sat on the table. And over in the corner of the room stood an old hard-coal stove. Yes, that's what it was. And in it, a small fire burned. The room was furnished with dark green plush furniture. We walked in and my host began to speak. Will you sit down by the fire and warm yourself? Uh, yes, I will. Thank you. Take off your outer coat. You'll dry out sooner. Dazed, I began to remove my coat. The man went over and sat down at a desk in the corner. He seemed to be done with me. 
Now that we were in the house, he ignored me. And yet I was conscious of his compelling, bead-like eyes. They were the most living thing in the room. As I walked near to the stove, I was aware the door which we just entered was opening slowly. I turned around and looked. There stood a woman. Even in the faint light of the room, I could see the terror written on her face. She clutched a shawl about her. Her hands twitched. Her hair was in disorder, as if she'd been running her hands through it in frenzied despair. She stood looking at my host. Didn't seem to know that I was in the room. She walked over toward him. Stood staring at him. David. David. What have you done with them? David, answer me. What have you done with them? Where is my son? Where are all the servants? What have you done? You locked me in this house. You went away for three days. And I've been here alone with... with the dead. The dead! Oh, that's what you did. You killed them. You killed them all. Kill them. Kill them. Oh, you're insane. I've known it for months. You're mad. And you killed them. My son. The servants in this house. But there's one thing that you don't know yet. David Rubb. You killed them. But they won't die. <laughs> they won't die. Yeah, we'll see who's insane, Marine. We shall see. <laughs> Is it I? Oh, no. But I know a woman who's going mad. Yes. <laughs> she is going mad. Don't touch me with those hands of yours. Those hands that have danced upon them. My wife, Florine, tells me what to do. My wife who loved her children more than me, who smiled upon the servants more than me. Now she tells me what to do. Tell me what you did with their bodies. Why do you keep all the doors in this house locked? Where are their bodies? Let me have the body of my son so I can bury him and he can rest easily. David, you killed him. But I tell you, he won't die. No. No, I've been in this house for three nights. Alone. Locked in. <laughs> I heard the screams the night you killed them. And since then, I've heard more. More than that. Look. Look. The door is opening. All by itself. You don't see anyone, do you? But, David, there is someone there... Do you hear them walking? It's Mary. Mary, the servant. See? She's still going about her duties. Look. The door to the stove opens. She's banking the fire. No. No. She's going about her duties, even though she's dead, because she's not buried properly. She still moves in this house. Oh, no, no, it's impossible. Yes. She's walking right near you. Uh, no. There's no one here. No. But you hear her walking, don't you? Yes. Yes, I hear. Look. 
see what's happening now. She's taking the lamp with her. <sighs> that lamp. It's moving off the table all by itself. No. Mary is carrying it. See it move? As if a hand carried it. She can't be carrying it. She's dead. And you killed her. Killed her. But she won't die. Listen. Do you hear? She's walking toward the door again. Uh. And see the lamp? She holds it higher as she opens the door. Uh. You mad woman. What manner of thing have you rigged up to frighten me? I've done nothing. Not I, but you, David Rugg. What have you done with their bodies? That door closed. All by itself. The lamp is gone. No, it couldn't happen. But it has. Dead people can't return and move about. Dead hands can't open doors and carry lamps. No. Such things have been going on for the last three days. Since you killed them all and left me locked in this house alone. You planned this. You're trying to frighten me. You think you may save yourself. You think you can get me to run out of here so that you can get away and tell what I've done? Ah, <laughs> you can't, because you're going to die just as they did, just as horrible a death. I'm not afraid of death. Oh, you'll be afraid of this death. You'll be afraid of this, <laughs> because it's slow and horrible. <laughs>
<laughs> a night of horror. But is it really a dream of Sidney Trent's? You can observe I have the Honorable David Rugg well in hand. And who knows but that Sidney himself may fall into my toils. Doesn't he sound a bit insane with such a fantastic tale? Well, it's all right here in my scrapbook. You will know. You will know. Now, what do you suppose has happened to the servants? And the boy Jimmy of the Rugg family, eh? Listen, while Sidney Trent continues his engrossing account of this night of horror. <laughs> Merciful Father, what was I witnessing? What? They'd forgotten all about me. Or was it real? For I couldn't move. My, my tongue clung to the roof of my mouth. Perspiration stood out of my forehead. And yet I couldn't move. A man who killed a demon... And when the woman screamed, I, I tried to make my legs move. I tried to go over to help her, but I was powerless. He wrenched her arm, broke it, and I, I couldn't move. And then as they started to go out the door, I, I realized that some power was pushing me. I was following them. I seemed to be forced to hear and see more. Merciful heaven, we were moving through the black holes. I, a shadow behind them, and the three of us, walking, walking, down a dark, narrow stairway. I followed them down the stairs. The wife of David Rugg kept on moaning, but she, like me, was helpless in the power of this demon. The stairs were crooked. They seemed to lead us down and down. So filled with fear, I was still conscious of the odor of smoke I smelled when we first came in this strange house. But I was powerless to open my lips and speak. Then we reached the door. David Rugg unlocked it. There, you see? They couldn't get out and walk about because I've had their bodies locked in here. You killed them down here, all of them. My son and the three servants. Martha. Oh, I can still hear Jimmy calling me. Martha. Oh, it's near now. You've come at last. Oh, yes, Jimmy. I'm here. I won't be afraid now. Down here in the dark. Now that you've come. No, Jimmy. Don't be afraid of death, Mother. It's better we're all dead than to live with a madman like Father. You hear what your son says. I hear nothing. But you look. See what you can see no. down in this hole. No. Huh? I'll let you see their bodies, and then you'll know they're dead. No. You see, I dug this deep hole in the earth, a uh, deep one. First I murdered them, no. then I threw their bodies down in this hole. Uh, uh, wait, wait till I light a candle, no. then you can see. No. Uh, uh, now look, oh. look, there. What do you see? No. Are the bodies of the three servants there? No. Do you see the body of your son? They're all stark still in death. 
So how could Mary have walked in that room upstairs uh, and fixed the fire and taken the lamp off the table? And how could Jimmy call to you? Uh, no, I know Walter is in this house. And as soon as I've killed you, I'll find him. And I'll kill him. I'll be the only one in this family left. The only one. Not me. I dug this hole in the basement deep. And now... I'm going to throw you in it. Throw you in it alive and pile dirt upon you. <laughs> yes, I am. I'll jump down into that hole with these dead bodies. No! Jump down into that hole, Lorene. Down. Kill me first before you throw me down there. Kill me first. All right, you won't jump by yourself. I'll push you <laughs> The last of you in a few moments. Now I'll shovel the dirt over you. I'll shovel the dirt over you. Ignore me for years, will you? <laughs> I now expect mercy. You and your sons thought you were smarter than me. And your servants thought you were the only person in this house with authority. Well, where are your servants now? <laughs> and where is it? Jimmy? And where are you? <laughs> I'll get Walter, too. Why don't you answer me? <laughs> you don't answer me. Why don't you answer me? <laughs> How do you like it down there? I guess none of you will be able to walk about the house now, deep on the ground like you all would be. Huh? <laughs> and now, now I'll pat it all down. I'll pat the earth down good. And no one will find you now, and no one will suspect me. <laughs> What's happening? What is it? There's smoke coming down here. Uh, this house, this house is all afire. I've got to get out of here. This house is burning. Ah, help! I've got to get out of here. The house was a fire. Yes, I ran too, up the stairs. I started from where I thought the outside door was. The roof was caving in. I heard Rug scream. Then I heard a crash. I thought of the roof had fallen on It was a burning torch, a mass of flames. I kept on running. Somehow I got out. I ran away from the house. I could hear his screams in the distance. I looked back at the house. It was a seething mass of fire, burning as if it had been saturated with oil. I kept on running. Suddenly I realized I was on the pavement. Yes, the paved road again, and it was daylight. Daylight and there stood my car, just where I'd left it. And I thought I was stuck on a muddy road. But it was pavement now. I got in the car, put my foot on the stile, and I drove away. I came home, walked in the house, told you the story, and now I know, I know I didn't breathe it. It actually happened, man. We've got to go right back there and find that house that burned down last night. Sydney, there's no old-fashioned house along this highway. None of your story makes sense. It must have been right along here somewhere. Yes, I remember the trees in that yard. I saw them as I was running away last night. Sydney, no house burned down. Don't you see that's a modern home standing there? 
What are you going to do? I'm going up to that house and find out if there was a place near here that burned. Oh, you must have dreamed all that last night. Can't you realize this is silly, dear? We drove all along this highway. There was no place where a house had burned down. Well, I'm going to find out. There was no storm last night. None of it makes any sense. Yes? Uh, well, how do you do? My name's Trent. I, uh, I want to ask you... Well, uh, that is, I, I mean to say... Well, my husband is upset about something. He had a very bad dream, and in it he saw these trees that are here in your yard. Is that so? That was no dream. I saw a house burned at the ground here, on this very spot, last night. Last night? Well, sir, I'm afraid you must have been dreaming, sir. Oh, oh you see, darling? As a matter of fact, a house did burn down here. Let's see, it must have been 40 years ago. My father's house burned to the ground. Your father's house? Your name's Walter. Yes. Walter Rugg. Yes, but I don't recall... Were the bodies of your mother and brother and the servants found? No, they never were. Well, did you build this house right over the old site? No, the old house stood where my tennis court is now. Yes, but look then here... If you dig down deep there, you'll find the bones of your servant, your mother and your brother. Well, that's where your father hid them. What? You do as I say. I know it's true. They all lie there. Moldering. Well, we ought to be just about in the place right now. <clears throat> Too bad to ruin your tennis court. But it's all so preposterous, Mr. Trent. How could you possibly have witnessed such an impossible thing? I don't know. I, I don't know. It's the weirdest thing I ever heard of. But I know it's true. You seem quite in your senses, but if you're wrong about this, you know... Yes, I know. I'll be a candidate for the state institution. But if you're right, the dreadful mystery that's hung over my head these past 40 years will be cleared up. And it will be. Have no fear. Look. See here. Oh. Human bones. But to, but to prove we're right, I must find the broken bones of the right arm. They should be right here on top. Yes, yes. Here they are. Broken bones. The bones of your of your mother. Your father murdered her, your brother, and the servants. But was punished for the burning death himself. Oh, it's all so horrible. Horrible. Mother. Mother. Walter has come to set us free. Yes, Jimmy. Walter will give us a decent burial. At last our tired souls can rest.
you witness one of the most masterful exploits, the conquest of David Rugg, and a pretty tale, too, don't you think? Now, turn on your lights. Turn them on. Another chapter from The Devil's Scrapbook featuring Charles Penman as David Rugg. If you like stories of the supernatural, join The Devil next week at the same time. Good night and pleasant dreams. <laughs> this is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. And now wait. Wait. For a voice. This is Ken Nordane. I come to you from out of darkness into a single point of light. a single point of concentration. The senses are sharpened to it. All else is blacked out. And from any floating form or shifting shape, the midnight mind will see faces in the window. Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal to some news. Blood was its sign. The redness, the horror, sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding of the poise, and then a wasting away. The scarlet stains upon the body especially upon the face of the victims, with the terrible warnings which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the entire onslaught, its progress and fatal end, took but half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was unafraid. He was happy in his own security. Plans for escape from the bleeding death. For he was beyond the fate of the helpless and the common victims of his kingdom. 
when his dominion was half depopulated by the spreading plague, he summoned to his presence a thousand healthy and light-hearted friends from among the knights and the women of his court. And with these, he retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castles. Now, this was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric taste. A strong and lofty wall encircled it, with this wall at gates of iron. The guests, having entered, brought torches and massive hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave no means of entrance nor of exit to the sudden impulses of despair or frenzy from within. And the castle had ample provisions. With such precautions, the courtiers might defy this dread disease. The external world, less fortunate in it, could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve and to think. The prince had provided every form of pleasure and self-indulgence. There were clowns, ballet dancers, magicians. There were musicians and there was beauty. And there was wine. All of these and security were locked inside. Outside on the open plain, there was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously in the land, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. The rooms were so irregularly placed that it was possible to see but little more than one at a time. It was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn, a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which wound around the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. The room at the eastern extremity, for example, was hung in blue. And vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and draperies. And here, the window panes were purple. The third was green throughout, the fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet, and the seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and color. But in this chamber, only the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabra. 
There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle. But in the corridors that ran winding through the suite, there stood opposite the each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. So there was produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly and produced so wild a look upon the faces of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within that room at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic ebony clock. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. When the minute hand had swept the full circle, the hour was to be struck. There came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound that was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical. But of such a peculiar tone and accent that at the striking of each hour, the musicians were forced to pause momentarily in their performance to listen to it. And the dancers stopped their dancing and a brief, subtle gloom came over the whole company. While the chimes still rang, you could see that the most joyous grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes ceased, the light laughter of the company returned. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and made whispered vows to each other that the next chiming of the clock should produce no similar emotion. And then when the next hour passed, there came another chiming of the clock and there was the same gloom, the same nervousness, the same meditation as before. But in spite of these things, or because of them. It was a gay and magnificent ball. The tastes of the prince were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his ideas glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers, however, felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear, to see, and to touch him, to be sure he was not. He had designed most of the furnishings in the seven rooms, especially for this great festivity. And it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. You may be sure that they were grotesque. There were arabesque figures with unmatched limbs. There were delirious madman fancies. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which excites disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of masked dreams. And these, the dreams, writhing in and out, taking color from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem like the echo of their steps. 
And soon, there comes the music from the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still except the voice of that The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but for an instant. And a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells and the dreams live and writhe about more merrily than ever, taking color from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays of fire. But there are none now of the maskers who venture into the chamber to the west. For the night is waning away and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes. And the blackness of the sable drapery chills the very breath of death. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the warmth and the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on until at length there commenced the sounding midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have said, and the dancers were again quieted. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And so with more time, perhaps it happened that some had thoughts that crept in horribly into their meditations. And perhaps, too, it happened that before the last echoes of the last chime had sunk into complete silence, there were many individuals in that room, in that crowd, who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which no one had seen before. And the rumor of this new presence was whispered around. And soon there arose from the whole company a buzz, a murmuring, an expression of disapproval and surprise, and then finally of terror and of horror and disgust. An assembly of fantasies such as I have painted. It may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such tension. There was no limit imposed on the masquerades that night. But the figure in question had outherited Herod, had gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's boundless taste. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the hopelessly lost, to whom life and death are equally a jest, there are matters of which no jests may be made. The whole company of wild revelers, in fact, now seem to feel that in the costume and bearing of this stranger, there existed neither wit nor propriety. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the garments of the grave. The mask which concealed the face was so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny could not have detected. Yet all this might have been endured, if not approved by the revelers. But the masquerader had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His costume was dotted with blood, and his broad brow and all the features of his face were sprinkled 
the Scarlet Horror. When Prince Prospero saw this spectral image, he first shuddered in terror and distaste, but in the next moment, his brow reddened with rage, he shouted to the courtiers near him, Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we hang at sunrise on our battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber that the Prince Prospero stood as he spoke these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold, robust man. And the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince, with a group of pale coffins on his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group toward the intruder. And from a certain nameless awe with which the masquerader inspired the whole party, there was none who dared put forth his hand to seize him, so that he passed untouched within the yard of the prince, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls. He made his way uninterruptedly, with a solemn and measured step, walked through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this, through the white to the violet, before a decided movement had been made to stop him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and shame at his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers. So none followed him, for the deadly terror had seized them all. He held a dagger above his head and had approached within three or four feet of the retreating figure, who had just reached the edge of the velvet apartment. When the figure suddenly turned and confronted him, there was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, and in the next instant, the Prince Prospero fell dead. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair... Throng of revelers threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the masquerader whose tall figure stood erect and motionless, tore violently at his mask and costume. And they fell back like a rushing wave, gasping in unutterable horror, for beneath the grave shrouds and the corpse-like mask, there was no tangible form. Now... Now they understood the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, come to strike down the high in their security and the low in their desolation. And one by one, the revelers dropped in the blood-smeared halls of their revel, and each died in the despairing posture of this fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last, the flames of the tripods expired and darkness and decay death has illimitable dominion over all. mind at midnight is lonely, and the 
her senses are sharp. And so from out of darkness of shape or form, where a single light is focused, the sharp and lonely midnight mind will see faces in the window. You have been listening to a reading of The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, adapted by Marvin David, directed by David Waters, technical director Tom Bowles, lighting by Vernon Joffrey. Faces in the Window was created by Marvin David and George Heineman and featured Ken Nordine. And now, here's a message from Ken Nordine. I want to say very few brief words. A thank you to the many, many people who have written both me and Faces in the Window. And if you would like to have this program continue, we would appreciate your letters. Also, we would appreciate knowing the kind of stories that you would like to hear. And so until next Saturday. Good night. Well, that's the show for tonight. I hope you all enjoyed these hidden gems that I found. And thank you for listening. And remember, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970. Or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd. Or on Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. And if you want to drop me a line, say hello, make a suggestion, a request, a, even a critique, feel free to email me at radioshownerd at gmail.com. I also have a YouTube channel. Please check it out. Subscribe. Like the videos. It will be highly appreciated. Again, this is your host, Keith, better known as the Radio Show Nerd, signing off. <laughs>